0: Mostly Books meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Sarah. This week I'm talking to Ross Welford, one of the most critically acclaimed middle grade authors in the UK. Ross's debut children's novel, Time Travelling with a Hamster, was published in 2015 and he's gone on to publish a further five middle grade books, the latest of which, When We Got Lost in Dreamland, was published in January this year. His books have been translated into over 15 languages, and he's been shortlisted for some of the UK's most prestigious children's book prizes, including the Costa and the Blue Peter Book Award. Ross, welcome to Mostly Books Meets.
1: Hello, Sarah. Lovely to be here.
0: It's really wonderful to have you here. Your books are a firm favourite in our shop, and we always have them in stock. They're a very easy hand sell, I have to say. What's not to love about the well-written fiction with a bit of magical mystery stuff thrown in?
1: Oh, well, that's nice
0: to know. Let's start off by going back to your childhood. You were born and raised in colour coats.
1: That's right. In the uh, lovely north of England, yeah.
0: Perfect. What do you remember about your childhood? Well,
1: I, I mean, I was blessed with a, a happy, comfortable upbringing with a stable family, you know. Colour very close to Whitney Bay. And back then, back in the 60s and 70s, it was still recognisably a holiday destination. You know, it was a resort. The, the Bay itself was, you know, there was a fairground and penny arcades and things like that. And during the summer, it was really, really busy. You know, it was fun. It was a fun place. And people would go to the beach. And, you know, we used to go down swimming, God, in the North Sea.
0: <laughs> a lot more robust as children.
1: We, we loved it. It was great. It's a lot like... Quieter now, but you know, it's still a lovely part of the world
0: yeah absolutely what, what's not to love as a child having access to all of that um, as well as the sea? so did you read a lot as a child
1: yeah yeah I mean I was again I was you know I was very lucky I had a I've got three older brothers and sisters so I had a house full of books and I could read pretty fluently before I started school and yeah it was books at bedtime I mean my mum with with four kids my mum was pretty relieved when I learned to read on my own <laughs> relieved her of the the duty of doing bedtime stories and yeah very, she was very happy to do just leave me to get on with reading myself. My dad would come in sometimes from work and read us. His, his favourites were poems from A.A. Milne. Yeah, when uh, now we are six.
0: Oh yeah.
1: And yeah, just let, it, it never. Inter- I was never interrupted if I had a book in my hand. Um, pretty much. I was a keen reader.
0: Were you one of those kids that had the torch under the veil, under the blanket?
1: Yeah, definitely definitely and I was lucky enough we had tiny but uh, to me it was uh, it was huge when I was little it was a, a little local branch library and it's still there the color codes Branch Library oh
0: lovely um,
1: about the size of my front room now and I got through everything in their kids section
0: it's funny I've been speaking to an awful lot of people and we've been doing quite a lot of recordings in the last couple of weeks for this series mm. and the theme of libraries just keeps coming up again and again and it's just the thing that mm. we reiterate to everyone as booksellers how important those libraries are probably preaching to the converted if people are in our shop buying books but yeah. um, the magic of the library is definitely a thing
1: don't don't as a bookseller don't you want to say don't, don't go to the libraries come and buy them instead
0: do, do you know we've actually been told that the research been done that towns that have got active libraries yeah the bookshops in those towns actually sell more books Uh, which seems a bit counterintuitive but I guess I understand it people if they read then they're going to want to read wherever they can get hold of the book
1: yeah 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 good news (laughs) right
0: yeah (laughs) win-win yeah what was the first book you remember reading
1: well, I had to think about think hard about this one. It was almost certainly an Enid Biden and I think it was probably the Faraway Tree stories. I absolutely love them. And I still do. I read reread them to my children when they were little. And yeah, I mean I think they probably the first one I actually remember was something dull like the 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 little red hen. <laughs> you know, school primer. But yeah, actually, storybooks, it'll have been the faraway tree stories. But they're great. I dipped into it the other day because I just need to refresh my memory. And yeah, I mean, it's such a cool and simple idea that at the top of a magical tree, the, there was a, a magical land that that changed every now and then. Like, what a great idea that is
0: Do you know I'm embarrassed to say As a bookseller And a massive book fiend I have read a lot of Ina Blyton's as a child But I never read The Magic Faraway Tree oh. Isn't that funny And we have it in the shop And I always swear I should yeah. read it And I haven't Yeah
1: yeah yeah uh, Well I'm You know I would really recommend it But uh, obviously They've changed it around A little bit now uh, You know To keep Ina Blyton Relevant to To kids these days They have changed One or two little elements Where you can cut this out The um, two of the kids rather unfortunately these days were called Dick and Fanny. Um, so then, <laughs> I, then I call Rick and Franny, which I think for parents everywhere is such a relief, you know. And... Um, <laughs>
0: I don't want to cut that out.
1: There's uh there's one of the baddies, one of the people that they come across in one of the lands. It's called something like Dame Slap-a-lot who goes around slapping naughty children. And quite understandably they have adapted that for the times.
0: They don't want to encourage that no, kind of exactly. behavior, <laughs>
1: you know. And um I can, you know, I can completely get behind that. And certainly if I was the owner of the Enid Blyton estate, I'd be thinking, well, yeah, anything to keep keep my books being sold.
0: We do feel like there's like a constant stream of them to be perfectly honest we are regularly getting updates in the Blyton library so that 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 works it works for us it works for publishers yeah. as well so
1: Back then, you know, she attracted a lot of the same sort of opprobrium as David Williams gets now. But she was popular just as just as David Williams is. Perhaps not great literature, but my goodness me, it kept me reading. And I read practically everything she but I
0: think Ina Blyton's a, for an example for an awful lot of people of the first author where you discover an author and then because you know that author's good, you then carry on reading them. Yeah. I certainly discovered that. I felt like that as a child and I've heard that from quite a few people I've spoken to, which you know, she just had such an array of different books, then it gets you hooked.
1: Yeah, it really, really does, it really does. And such good such good plots. She was really good with plots. In fact, so good she had, she wasn't scared to reuse them several times. I mean, i have that <laughs> one again. You know, you notice that if you're reading things like Secret Seven and Famous Thing, Okay, here we are again. No, I never noticed that as a kid,
0: you know. No. No, you don't, do you? So after finishing school, you went to university, and after graduating, you moved to London to become a journalist. You did that for a few years before heading into TV production, hmm. where I was amazed when I read your bio. Uh-huh. The TV programs you produced were some of my absolute favourites. Oh, really? Oh, good. The Big Breakfast. Yeah. Oh, it, I watched it religiously. I loved it.
1: Oh right. Oh good. 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 Yeah. It was a. It, you know, it was a fun time. Really. I mean, things like the Big Breakfast. I have, I have to say They were more fun to watch Than they were to make I bet The Big Breakfast Was a hard show to make It was a, a big team A very, very very early start And very, very demanding But I'm glad I did it I mean, very often Night like before we went on air I think we went on air At 7am And you would usually work through, work through the night Finish the script At about 2 or something And then we'd catch a cab Up to the production house And, you know, the bed Where Paula did her interview mm-hmm. It was actually just a, a pile of packing crate With a thin mat mass- oh really yeah and a thin mattress on top you know i'd sleep on that for a couple of hours before um, <laughs> before getting up brushing my teeth and starting the show and then but that day you'd be done by 10am yeah it was good
0: fun yeah it looked like it was a lot of fun but like i said i mean i'd written down here anyway before we were speaking here. all i think about is it must be hard work because i think like you say as the viewer there's so there was so much going on
1: mm. that to try
0: i can't even imagine what that must have been like to pull it all together oh. how did you get involved in that
1: in the big backgrounds of tv particularly
0: tv production as a whole
1: uh, well, the, the magazine that I ended up working for when I started off was a magazine about the television industry. It was a, a trade magazine, a business mag for TV world. And I sort of squeezed the pips out of that, and I wanted to go and work in television proper. And so I had, I had a couple of contacts through writing about the industry. So I put the feelers out and ended up getting my first job. was uh, I was a researcher on a show called The Time, The Place at Penn's Television. And that was a daily a daily discussion show on ITV. Morning show, sort of a rival to Kilroy, if you remember that in the early nineties. Yeah. And so from there, yeah, so from there I went on to you know do other sort of tended to be daily lifestyle or live shows. So
0: it kept kept life varied. and yeah. um, At what point in your career did you decide that you'd like to write a book, and, and did something particular happen trigger that decision?
1: Yeah. I Well, I, I stayed in TV for a while and it was good fun. But by the time as a, as a family, we all moved to Sweden. My, my wife was Swedish oh. and uh, she got a great job at a Swedish bank. And so we all moved out there. I couldn't work as a TV producer there because I don't speak Swedish. So I was kind of unemployed. And well, I would say I was unemployed. That's that's not fair. I was a full-time dad, do twins, which was the best job I've ever had, of course. I, I loved it. <laughs> But I, you know, I did find myself, once the kids were off at school, I did find myself with a lot of time on my hands in a strange country. So if I had no more excuses now, I might as well start to write. I'd, I'd always... Had the idea that I might write a book, I'd do something like that. But <laughs> quite rightly, I thought that's going to be really hard work. And <laughs> I'm not so it, it's very, very it's, it's much much easier not to write than to write. But I ran out of excuses really. So yeah, I started to write this idea that I'd, I had kicking about in my head for ages, which was the time travel one.
0: So it just developed naturally and then pen to paper and came to that. It wasn't.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I'd done as a few years before then. I'd done a part time. In screenwriting at the City University, and that was two years as a part-time MA because I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to write movies or something. And I didn't end up writing movies, but what it did that sort of opened my eyes a little bit to the possibilities of using my own imagination, I suppose. Um, because you know, you have to write stuff on an MA screenwriting. I ended up with a writing a writing a movie that's now sitting in my bottom drawer untouched. Oh, and, I mean, I still keep meaning to go back to it. I still think you know, it's quite a good story. In it. But it, it kind of opened my eyes. I thought. Uh, you know what i could possibly be able to to do this, this making it all up is it? it's
0: amazing actually isn't it just how transferable that kind of thing is you go and think yeah. you one thing and then you end up doing applying the skills to something completely different yeah your first book like you say time traveling with a hamster was published and it was extremely well received mm. how did you find that as, as a debut author how was the experience
1: it's a good question. I didn't know what to expect. If you'd said to me wh- when I was writing it, well, you know what? We'll find uh, we'll find a small imprint that's going to run a thousand copies. You'll be a published author. I'd have bitten your arm mm-hmm. uh, You know, wow, what? I'm going to have a book published. So the when it rapidly escalated into getting an agent and it being sold to Harper and uh, being Waterstones Book of the Month and everything, which which really was a hell of a beginning. Yeah you know I, I couldn't believe it it was wonderful but being new to the to the whole industry I suppose there was a line, an element of me that was wondering well is this normal well is this what happens to every new book it, <laughs> it gets immediately picked up by, by a big publisher and becomes um, an instant bestseller and everything and did I did take a couple of calls from my publisher who was trying very politely to say you know Ross this isn't normal <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> I
0: was get, gonna say news flashes
1: don't, don't get used to this you know <laughs> but don't expect this to Happen every time, but I was, you know, very fortunate that that one it, it really did launch my career. They wanted another one, and another one, another one, and so on.
0: So, how long did it take you to write the first book, and then how long did you have to write the second? I'm always interested in this question because ah, I think okay. once you're published, the time frames change significantly, don't they?
1: Yeah, I know. It, it definitely it's a lot different once you publish. The first one took me two or three years in the making, from very first sentence to getting it out in the shop. I wrote about a quarter of it, then we ended up coming back to England, and I had a quarter written, and that had taken me about six months. I had about a quarter written. And I was feeling a little bit tail between my legs because I hadn't finished it. Um, and a friend of mine recommended that I enrol on a on a course on an adult ed course, which was being run in conjunction with an American program called Nano which is short for National Novel Writing Month. And the idea is is that you pledge to write a first draft in a month. It's the sort of don't get it right, get get it written approach. Mm-hmm. You just don't for one month you write fifteen hundred words a day or whatever, even of rubbish, but you you end up with the first draft. So I did that. And I ended up with a sort of fifty, sixty thousand word first draft, which was which was awful. But over the next few months, I rewrote it, and by the following spring, I had it into into something that I thought was possibly worth showing around. You know, I thought, yeah, this is not so bad.
0: And then, was it? Did you just go out to agents with that?
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm really bad at self-publicity, Sarah. So, so I sent it out to one or two agents and had it sent back. But there was one agent that kept sitting on it, kept sitting on it, and kept sitting on it. And I kept chasing him. And eventually, he said, I'm "Going to hand this over to a colleague of mine." And of course, I thought, "Okay, well, that's the polite way of saying thanks, but no thanks." Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. A couple of weeks after that, his colleague called me back. Said, "My name is Sylvia. I work for Peter Fraser and Dunlop. I've just read your work, your, your book, and I really love it. And I want to take you on as a client."
0: Amazing!
1: Wow, that was in the that was so. By then, it was the November. That was the greatest phone call I've ever taken in my life. You know, <laughs> because a few months after that. Uh, she had sold it to
0: HarperCollins and the rest is history.
1: Yeah, well, then, then, well, then the rest of the HarperCollins I've never written anything like that before, so there was, you know, they wanted a new ending. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the ending that we have now in *Time Traveling with a Hamster*, which I think is, I love, I love it, but it's a happy ending. And uh, the ending that I'd been sending out was, was was very, very logical. And it worked absolutely, but it was very downbeat. And they said, <laughs> you know, they, they said, look, we'll publish it this way if you really, really want. But if you want to sell lot, I recommend that this is, you know, this is a 10 year old. I recommend you give it a happy ending. So I tried a couple more endings until we uh, ended up with the one that we have now. And I'm so glad we did.
0: Good advice. Brilliant. So fast forward to today. You live in London with your wife and children, and you just published your sixth book. Yeah. When We Got Lost in Dreamland. What's this book about?
1: Well, this is my most ambitious one, I think. And I always say this, but I do think this one is my favourite. This is about two young brothers, Malky and Seb, 11 and 7. They acquire each a mysterious device called a Dreaminator, which is something that you hang over your bed, and it allows you not only to direct and have whatever dreams you like, control your dreams, but you can share them. And Malky and Seb end up sharing their dreams. And it's all really, really good fun at first, you know, but it's the nature of these things that something goes horrible wrong. Um, And yeah, Seb ends up stuck in his dream in real life. He is in a coma. Uh, Doctors don't know what to do. They can't wake him up. And it's only Malky knows where he is. He is stuck in dreamland. He's a prisoner of some Stone Age warriors. And Malky has to go back into this dangerous dreamland to rescue his brother.
0: Amazing. Where did the idea of the story come from?
1: Do you know what? Disappointingly, I can't remember. Oh no! I know, I know, but I usually can I, I don't know, I think I must have read an article or seen something on TV about lucid dreaming, uh, which is a thing and very often I see things like that and I'm like oh god, you know, there might be a story in that somewhere and I'll just sort of park it somewhere in the back of my head and then when it comes around to thinking of a new idea, I'll just sift through these ideas and like, go, oh, can I do something with that could I do something with that? And I ended up reading a little bit around lucid dreaming and wondering how I could get these boys or this kid i didn't even know who the cast was then how I could get them into this situation my thoughts turned to dream catchers do you remember those things as- yeah think some people still have them you know those decorative things and I thought hmm dream catchers and so I I fiddled around with that for a while and turned a dream catcher into a dreaminator and yeah just kept writing usually the way I I find a story is just to start off with something and just to write and write and write
0: just evolves naturally
1: Mm, Um, yeah
0: how have you found the experience of writing this book versus the others has it felt different for each book or are you fairly consistent with the way you do it
1: no it's hell every time (laughs) Every time I think, oh, no, this is going to be the one where I get found out. (laughs) Where I get found out to be a talentless fraud. (laughs) Takes a long time, usually the period between submitting the final draft and the book coming out, it'll take a while. I'll be convinced in that period that this is just awful. Everyone's going to hate it. And then by the time I have the book in my hand, which is a few weeks later, and I go, I start clicking through it. I think, oh, bit's quite nice. Oh, I like that. Oh, maybe, you know, maybe this one. <laughs> maybe I'll do another one. Yeah.
0: And so the cycle begins again.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Why did you decide to write children's books
1: in particular? I didn't really... I had this idea for a time travel story and at the time I had when I started writing it my kids were probably about 10 I have twins and they were, they were probably they were probably about 10 and I thought oh yeah it, it'll be a you know nice to write a book that they can read you know I suppose and at the time I well when Time Traveling with a Hamster was written in my in my head I knew nothing about children's publishing and um, I thought YA you know young adult I thought oh that was the big thing that's the new genre, I'll write a YA book, not knowing anything about it, not knowing that you can't have an 11-year-old protagonist really in a YA book. And so when HarperCollins came back to me and said, yeah, we're pitching this at middle grade, I was going, what's middle grade? You know, I just knew nothing about it. I was a little bit surprised that they were pitching it so young. And that makes total sense. And there were a couple of jokes and a couple of swear words I had to take out. But I didn't have to change it all that much to make it suitable for middle grade. And then they wanted another one. And after two books, I found myself as a children. Writer, you know? I
0: do think the middle grade fiction is one of the most delightful areas of book selling because it is the point where children's books are really kind of going from being really quite young to they're starting to develop and they're getting some really interesting, complex ideas in them.
1: Yes. Isn't it exciting?
0: Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. The range of choice in that genre is brilliant.
1: And then particularly at the moment, there are so many good books around for 10 for year olds, which they are not just for 10, 11 year olds. There's some really, really good books out there that are good reads for people of any age
0: yeah we're all massive fans of them in the shop it's it's one of my favourite parts of the job <laughs> having to read oh, children's
1: oh good yeah well also you know they get to the point you know they have they have good strong characters and there's no messing about in middle grade you've got to start your story off with a bang and keep it moving because 10 year olds are not stupid they're not going to stick around for chapter after chapter of digressive description.
0: Yep, that's totally right. All your books have a hint of magic or kind of fantasy realism in them. Mm. Uh, now that shouldn't be a huge surprise because you were invited to join the magic circle in twenty nineteen. Mm. That's that was yeah. that's fascinating for me. <laughs> have you always been interested in uh,
1: well, yeah. I mean that all goes back to, you know, when I was when I was very small again, you know, meeting Ina Blyden at the same time as that. I was getting into magic tricks and had a magic set like uh, like loads of kids loads of kids have magic sets they learn the you know the trick that works straight out of the box or something with a, with a tricky bit of gadgetry and they learn that and they think that's fun and most kids stop that I, I was fascinated with actually learning the performance of it and perhaps you know the more difficult bits of it it's a love that stayed with me all my life performing and just being interested in magic tricks and it, it wasn't until my second book until I did wrote Invisible that I realised that there was a theme in my writing that was similar to a magic trick. You know, it's presenting something, the stories that I write are, are presenting something impossible, it's like time travel or invisibility or immortality or whatever. It's something impossible, but it's happening in the real world. It's a bit like presenting a magic trick. And so now I find it a, a little bit easier, if you like, to think of the ideas, because I think, well, what would be impossible and how would that play out in the real world? And so, yeah, the two things come together. But I do, yeah, I. Like doing, like doing magic tricks. They don't work so well on a podcast, I'm afraid. I
0: know. I'm so disappointed. Maybe one day we'll get you along to, to an event and if that happens. Yeah, yeah. I see you, do a trick. So we're obviously, we're recording this during the third national lockdown uh, and the joys of uh,
1: the program. The third, fourth, and lockdown. Yeah, again.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's ongoing and we're all um, having to deal with incredibly strange times with COVID and the pandemic across the world. Yeah. Normally, when you publish a book, you would be, and as part of your job as a whole, you'd be out and about, you'd be going to mm. schools, you'd be going to festivals, you'd be meeting your readers. This year is obviously a very different Feel. How have you adjusted to, to how things are this last year?
1: Oh. Well, I mean, just the same as everybody else, really, just by gritting your teeth and getting on with it. You're right. I mean, n- normally now this—I mean, in fact, doing this chat with you as part as part of the book's promotion, I uh, very often be out going around schools and visiting classrooms and everything. And I do miss that. It's one of the great joys of being a, a middle grade writer is that I can get out and actually talk to people who read my book, and it's such mm-hmm. a joy to going into schools and going into classrooms. And you know, I I have a big show in which yeah, I do. I do magic. I do book related magic and talk about my books and I write stories with the kids and we do a little workshop. And I mean, it's huge fun. And, and I do love doing it. But that's all off the cards at the moment. Mm. I'm doing a few online virtual shows. But, you know, you can understand that m- most schools have got enough on their plates without trying to organise even a virtual author visit, even that takes time and an organisation, which, you know, a lot of schools, well, they, you know, they have other priorities at the moment, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah, we're certainly finding that we're currently planning for World book day, which is mm. obviously normally a really big time of year for the shop, And we would normally do probably eight or so events over mm. the course of a week with authors and, and book fairs. And like you say, schools have just said, you know what, this year, it's just not something yeah. we can do. Yeah. And um, it's a shame, but we're looking forward to when we'll be able to to all do that again.
1: Exactly. Oh, I'm dying to get back into schools and everything and it, it you know, it is something that I've missed. But you know, it is what it is. We'll we, you know, we'll get back to it and I look forward to that.
0: Yes, absolutely. So a lot of people are turning to books at the moment, they've had a bit more mm-hmm. time at home, maybe they're not travelling for work, whereas other people find they're unable to read, they're unable to concentrate. Which camp are you falling in?
1: I'm I've never found it a problem to read really. You know, <laughs> I, I do secretly I'm taking great pleasure in sometimes. I mean I I I really do miss going out and going to the pub and stuff like that. But being able to stay in and read, if you're a reader, that is always, you've always got that compensation. Mm. So I've been trying to, to draw that consolation from it.
0: What was the last book you read?
1: Actually, I've just finished re-reading. I re I read it the first time ages ago. Lost Horizon, which was by James Hilton. Mm-hmm. It was published in 1937. And it was a book that introduced us, introduced the world to the mythical Valley of Shangri-La, which is a, it's a utopian sort of book in a way very mysterious, wonderful sort of book. I I don't know if you know it. The the basic story is for Westerners, crash land in a hidden valley in Tibet where everything is perfect and people live for hundreds of years. And it's a wonderful book. And I remember reading it about 10 years ago and liking it. And I'm just starting to sketch out plans for my next book. And I thought, wow, do you know what? In these times, we could do with a little optimism. Mm. I don't want to write a dystopia. We've had plenty of dystopia. <laughs> recently. I thought, what about writing a an optimistic book about perfect world or something like that. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll go back and I'll reread *Lost Horizon* to see if that sparks any thought. Get
0: some inspiration. It's a
1: wonderful book. I've just found the Amazon Prime TV channel have got the old movie on it, so I'm going to watch that tonight. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> so go
0: watch that as well. Yeah. I haven't read the book. It does sound brilliant, so I'll have to add it to my. That's no, great.
1: And quite short. It's an easy read. And funny, I was so I was reading about it last night. It was one of the most popular books of the 20th century. It's got a great history behind it. And um, Camp David, the American presidential holiday home was originally called Shangri La, mm-hmm. yeah, named after the place in the book.
0: Oh my goodness! Yeah. wow, that's so cool. Do you always have one book on the go, or are you someone who can read a few concurrently? That's a good question.
1: Yeah, I can Normally, there's just one that I'm committed to. If I'm not reading it, I, I start another one. I always feel a bit dis- disloyal to the one that I've left on the side. <laughs>
0: you know. But, uh, I always like asking the question because I do think it really... People definitely fall in one camp or another. Yeah. I, I also have a theory about books. Yeah. Which is, I think that anyone that's a reader will have a book that has had an impact on them, that's changed their mm. life in some way, and that could be professionally, it could be personally. Yes. For you as a reader, do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it?
1: A book that changed my life, it would have to be Wonder by R.J. Palacio. Fabulous book. Which is a great book, it's a middle-grade book. And, well, it was Wonder that encouraged me to write Time Travelling with a Hamster. I'd, I'd been kicking around this idea for ages and read Wonder, and I realized that Adia Palacio was a, a middle aged woman writing in the voice of 10 year old Augie Pullman. It was, it's written in the first person. And I had never, mm-hmm. it, it had never crossed my mind that I would write. A middle grade book in the first person as a middle aged man that I could write as a as a ten year old mm-hmm. you know in the voice of a ten year old and as soon as I read Wonder I realized that um, she'd done it so well and I started writing time traveling with a hamster in the voice of al my protagonist and i realized that time i should be writing it so yeah, Goodness. yeah.
0: So just by reading one book it gave you that inspiration
1: exactly exactly that's the, that was the book that changed my life and i still recommend it at all my live shows and everything actually i have these days i recommend them that can say ask the kids to put their hands up who's read it and very very often most of the kids in the, in the room have read it and so it's had such an impact
0: yeah it really is a brilliant book and it's it's another one of these kind of timeless ones that 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 you just can't, you're always going to have it as a bookseller, we're always going to have it in the shop or easily accessible. So you've got your book, as we said before, When We Got Lost in Dreamland has just been published Mm -hmm. and that's kind of all happening. That's all still quite new now. What are your plans for the rest of 2021?
1: i uh, got to write another one, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I nobody's going anywhere and, and very soon. I'm still holding out for summer holiday, but come next <laughs> summer, I should have finished my next one. So, uh, so yeah, that's what I'm doing, writing, writing number seven. Brilliant. Yeah, it's nice. So, Like I said, I've got nothing else to do, so I might as well get on with it. <laughs> exactly. But, Pen to paper yeah, before
0: exactly. the country reopen. Oh, well, I can't wait for that to come and I, I really hope that things go well with When We Get Lost in Dreamland. Thank it's you. another great
1: book. Thank you so much.
0: No, thank you. I mean, Ross, it's been brilliant chatting to you today. Thank you so much for coming on, and I really appreciate you taking the time out.
1: You're very, very welcome.
0: And yeah, like I say, best of luck.
1: Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you.
0: Thanks. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.